I want you to start this morning by thinking about a time when your mind was, was blown. I'm talking about a, a moment in your life where, where you saw something in a completely new way and it, and it caught you off guard to the point that you were like, what? Hold on. I never thought about it like this before. I never considered this before. I was talking this week with Todd. He's our new children's ministry director. And so we went to Starbucks together to do some work. I was going to work on this message. He was going to work on all the children's stuff that he's doing. Um, And naturally, as we were working together, we were shooting the breeze a little bit, talking, getting to know each other. Um, He's only been on staff for a couple of weeks. And as we were talking and getting to know each other, we realized that both of us had taken some philosophy courses in college and had both really enjoyed those. And it reminded me of one of these times in my life when my mind was blown. I, I love movies, and, and I tend to really like more serious movies. I tend to like movies that really kind of push me to think critically um, or that, that stir up a lot of emotions. Um, I like crying at movies. Um, it doesn't make sense to my wife. Maybe it doesn't make sense to a lot of you. But I, I like that. I like that experience. And so someone recommended The Shawshank Redemption when I was early on in college. You know, they said, oh, if you like that type of movie, you'll love The Shawshank Redemption. I hadn't seen it. So I watched it, and I was like, oh, all right, this is a good movie. I like it. You know, it's about, it's about a guy um, who's wrongfully convicted of his wife's murder um, and sentenced to actually two life sentences in prison. And it's about kind of his life from that point and how he copes with that, how he continues to push forward, um, and how he eventually escapes prison. And it's, it's a really kind of dark movie, touches on some, some tough things in the criminal justice system and punishment and discipline. Um, and I enjoyed it. I was like, it's a good movie. It's serious. Kind of my genre. Then a few years later, I was taking one of these upper-level philosophy courses, and one of the assigned books we had to read was Foucault's Discipline and Punishment, which is all about you know, the criminal justice system, and it's about how we modify human behavior with discipline and punishment and how all of that works. Um, and, and I really enjoyed that specifically because it's not something I think about. I don't typically spend my days thinking about behavior modification and discipline and punishment and any of that stuff, so I enjoyed it. But it made me think back to the Shawshank Redemption. And so after I submitted my final paper on uh, discipline and punish, I went back and I watched the Shawshank Redemption again. And I was like, whoa, what? No way. Like, I watched that movie again, and it was a totally different experience because of the book I had read, because of the way that I had been thinking about criminal justice systems and prison systems and all of that. I watched it again, and I was like, how did I watch this before and and not get this? Like, there's so much in that movie that is so deep and and such a great, you know, commentary on, on the prison system. And I was like, I missed all of this the first time I watched it. I had no idea how deep this movie went. And it was mind-blowing. But I got to tell you, um, that experience pales in comparison to the experience that I've had reading God's word over the past few months. Uh, the, the passage we're going to be studying today has, has had so many of those moments where I'm reading God's word and I'm reading this chapter that we're going to read today and I'm like, what? How have I read this so many times that I'm just now noticing these things that God is teaching. And it's been, been mind-blowing moment after mind-blowing moment, new teaching depth to what Jesus is saying over and over and over again. And I'm, I'm so excited to, to share that with you. You know, normally, when I do my devotions, my, my typical pattern is I'll read a chapter of, of Scripture a day. Not always, but that's generally what happens. Uh, and that's, that's a good practice for me because then I'm not reading too much. 
Um, it gives me the opportunity to meditate on a specific you know, chapter uh, for maybe 30, 40 minutes, and I don't go too far. I don't get caught in the weeds, but it's, it's still long enough that I have some context to what I'm reading. Um, and so that's what I'll typically do is I'll read a chapter a day, and I'll reread it, and I'll continue in that time for, for 30, 45 minutes or whatever. But recently, I, I got this devotional. And I actually got it because I was hoping that it would be a good devotional for our, our students to use in the youth ministry. And after checking it out, looking at it deeper, I was like, no, this isn't the right fit for our student ministry right now. But I was like, I have it, so I'll do it. I don't, I don't typically do devotional books. Usually I just, you know, read through scripture. Uh, so I'll check out this devotional book. And part of the way through, what it had me do is it had me spend two weeks in John 14 and then another two weeks in John 15 in the same two chapters every day for those two weeks. And it was incredible. I was learning so much, and, and I, haven't actually, I haven't actually stopped. I'm still reading John chapter 14 and 15 daily because meditating on those two chapters has opened up so much to me from these scriptures that I didn't notice before. And, and man, it is, it is a deep, dense, rich passage of, of teaching. And I was, man, I, like, I wish you could see my notes. I look like a crazy person scribbling on prison walls with all my notes from this passage. Um, and I wish I had like a year of sermon series to, to teach you guys everything that God's taught me. But I have one day. So, you know, hang on. Let's do it. Before we actually jump in today, um, and today we will, we're just going to look at John 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17 because the two chapters is just too much. So we'll focus on this one section that I think is kind of the heart of Jesus' teaching. But I want to give you a little bit of background first so we can understand the impact of these words of Jesus. Because So what's happening here in, in the chapters that precede John 15 is the, the Last Supper. This is actually a teaching that Jesus shares with his disciples at the Lord's Supper. And what's already happened is Jesus has already washed the disciples' feet. They've already shared the meal, and Judas has already left. Jesus, Jesus has already kind of made that statement, one of you at the table will betray me, and Judas has already got up and he's left, so he's gone, he's off talking to the Pharisees, you know, he's preparing to betray Jesus. And so it's just Jesus with his 11 disciples that are left, and he's sitting at the table, and he begins to teach them. And it's a really lengthy teaching. He actually goes on for, for four chapters in John, 13, 14, 15, 16, maybe even 17. But it's a, it's a long teaching. And what you need to realize is that what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to make sure that the, the disciples have what they need in light of his eventual death, resurrection, and ascension. You see, Jesus knows that in just a few hours, he's going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Judas is going to return, and he's going to bring with him soldiers, and Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be put on trial, and eventually he'll be crucified. And then three days later, he'll rise, and he'll have some time with his disciples, but then he'll ascend, and he'll return to the Father. And so Jesus' teaching here to the disciples is in light of all of that. Jesus is probably thinking, he's saying, okay, what do my disciples need? What teaching do they need? What word do they need? What edification do they need from me before I go to the cross? And then what teaching do they need to hang on to as they take over my ministry, as they continue my ministry in the world? And that's what he's talking about here. That's what he's decided this chapter, what we're going to look at is what Jesus says we need. Because we are an extension of the disciples. We are his church. This teaching is also for us as we look at how we're going to live in light of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, 
and in light of, of continuing his ministry here on earth. So with that in mind, let's jump in and let's read it together. It's John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. It says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that, your joy, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay his life down for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You do not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that that fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. These things I have commanded you, so that you will love one another. It's a really long passage. There's a lot there. And it's, I mean, it's so easy for us as, as Christians, as people who meditate on God's word, to like jump right into the weeds and start to pull it apart and start to think, you know, okay, like, what does it mean when he's talking about a branch withering and being thrown in the fire? Is he talking about eternal security? You know, can a branch be taken off? Or like, what are these commands that Jesus is talking about? You know, like, like, what do I have to do in order to prove that I'm a disciple? What is spiritual fruit? We can get on all these weeds. We can begin to ask all these questions. We can try to jump into these intricacies right away. And we miss the overarching theme. It's so simple. It's right through everything that Jesus is teaching. And it is to abide. The central focus of what Jesus is teaching is abiding. He's teaching the disciples to abide. And again, remember that this is the thing that Jesus has decided to teach in light of his death, resurrection, and ascension. He's thinking, my disciples need to know this before I die, rise, and go back to the Father. And he chooses abiding. He wants us to know how to abide with him. So some of his last words to the disciples before his mission is fulfilled. And so it is incredibly important, and it is the central focus of John 15 and even 14 as well. We have to know what it means to abide, though, because it's not necessarily simple, you know, like, how many of us use abide in our, our daily language? Probably not many of us. Um, and actually, it wasn't until this week that I went ahead and actually Googled the word abide and just looked for definitions. Um, and that was cool uh, because I saw 
that the word abide has three definitions, and they all work together, and they all weave together, and they happen that like, those three definitions work together in this passage, and it's really cool. Check it out. This is what it means to abide first. Most plainly, it means to dwell with, to be with. To abide with someone means to exist in their presence. You know, when I'm abiding with somebody, it means I'm, I'm with them, right? So that's, that's the first thing, to be with, to dwell with. Second, it means to have, like, to be lasting or unfading. And what Google, like I, I didn't realize, what Google specifically clued me in on is that when it, when it comes to this definition of lasting or being unfading, it actually is specifically in reference to memory. Like there's a specific connection between the unfadingness of abiding and memory. Right, so for me, you know, I, I remember my grandpa um, who's passed away and, and his memory is abiding in my mind. It's unfading in my mind. I know who he is and I have memories with him that, that, that last, even though he's gone. And so for us as believers, when God talks about abiding, he's, one of the things he's sharing is, is the same thing. When Jesus talks about abiding with him, he wants to make sure that his memory of what he did does not fade, that it abides with us always. And this is something that a lot of times as Christians we miss, especially if we've been believers a long time. We can get to the point where, where we've heard the gospel so many times, where we've, we've you know, been believers for so long to where it becomes complacent. And, and being a Christian is something that we think about more than actually the gospel. So let us, as Christians, as we abide with God, seek to, to speak it to our own hearts, to remember what Jesus did in a way that's unfading. And then finally, third definition is, of abide is to act in accordance to another's will. And you see this, you know, clearly in this passage, God, or Jesus talks often about how if you abide in me, you will obey my commands. And so abiding also has an element of acting in the will of the Father. And we, that's probably the most common, you know, definition. Like I've heard in, you know, um, medieval set TV shows, you know, a king makes a declaration and someone says, I will abide by your command or I'll abide by your will, right? Or I'll abide by your decision. And so it's living and being with it's having an unfading memory, and it's acting in accordance to God's will. And I want you to keep those things in your mind as we continue to dive deeper into this passage, because you'll see how each of them play a part in what it means to abide. It is complicated, though, and, and Jesus knows that. His disciples are, are a great example for us to look to because they always ask questions. We'll see in a little bit in John 14 how Judas, not Iscariot, but probably Thaddeus, ask a question of Jesus, a silly question, but, but he answers it. And we always have questions and we're always seeking to understand and, and Jesus' words are always kind of above our, our heads. So he, he gives us an analogy, as Jesus often did. He gives us and the disciples an analogy of what it means to abide and he chooses to talk about a grapevine. Let's take a look uh, at, you know, just the first couple verses of this chapter. It says, I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And so what we see here, first and foremost, is that abiding connects us to life. This is the most obvious and clear explanation of the analogy that Jesus is putting forth to understand abiding. Is that it connects us to life. We got any uh, people who own vineyards in here? Take care of grapevines? Anybody? Rob? No? All right. Yeah. So me either. 
I have a wild grapevine in my yard that's a, kind of a nuisance. But other than that, I don't know anything about grapes. Um, so I, I wanted to look further in this, and it really helped me because you know what I think of when I think of a vine is I think of Tarzan. I think of Tarzan swinging on a vine. And I thought it would have been really cool if I could have gotten a vine and like swung down from the baptismal down here as a part of the sermon analogy, but they told me I couldn't do that. Um, but that's what I think of when I think of a vine. And so this analogy was a little confusing at first because what does a vine hang from? It hangs from a, a branch. The branch actually supports the vine when we're talking about Tarzan vines. And so that was, I was like, like, come on, can't you just use like tree, tree trunk and branches? Like that makes more sense in my head because the tree trunk is the thing that, that founds the tree. But after looking at grapevines, um, I learned and I understood this more. Because what you see here is that this is the vine. It doesn't really look viney in the same way that, that I had in my head. It looks more like a, a tree trunk. And all of the branches are founded and rest upon that vine. And so when we're talking about vine and branches, this is the vine. It supports the branches. And these up here are the branches that bear fruit. And again, it, that vine is what provides life. Down here, lower than this picture, that's, that's where the vine connects to the soil, which has the roots. The vine is what brings water out of the soil to the branches. It's what brings nutrients out of the ground to allow the branches to live and bear fruit. Without this vine, these branches will wither and die. Jesus is saying, I am the vine. This makes this I am statement. He makes many of these throughout his time on earth, throughout his ministry. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the true vine. I am the true source of life. And we are these branches. If we do not stay connected to Jesus, we have no life. And we cannot have life apart from the vine. That's the, that's the gospel, right? That we are dead in our sin and our trespasses. And Jesus comes to give us life. And when we connect to Jesus and we put saving faith in him, we can dwell again with God. But apart from this vine, apart from Jesus, we are nothing. As Christians, we have to stay connected to Jesus. We have to stay connected to Jesus. We have to remember him in that way that is unfading, where it affects our lives. And secondly, right, abiding brings fruit in our lives. It's really clear from this analogy as well is that when we abide in that vine, then those branches bear fruit. It's not really an if question. It's a you will bear fruit question, right? Grapevines, branches that have been pruned appropriately will bear fruit in their season as long as they stay connected to the vine. But if you take those branches apart from the vine, not only do they die, but they don't bear any fruit. There's no grapes on a branch that's not attached to the vine. So for us as believers, we need to abide in Jesus not only because it gives us life, but because we cannot do anything apart from him. Our efforts and our abilities to follow Jesus, to impact the world for the kingdom of God, are worthless unless we are abiding in Jesus. Unless those fruits are as a result of abiding in Jesus and him working through us. We have to stay connected to Jesus because it's how we maintain our lives. It's how we bear fruit. 
And we want to know to begin, okay, how do we begin to abide? Like, what do, what do I do? Okay, I know that, that I need to abide. What's my first step? How do I do this? If this is so important that Jesus is telling it to us so we can know it in the light of his death and resurrection and continue his ministry, I've got to figure out what, what I do now. The first thing you need to understand and realize is that God is already with us. God is already with you if you have saving faith in Jesus Christ. You don't have to go and find God. You don't have to seek to abide him. You don't have to do things in order to get to a point where you can be in the presence of God. The presence of God is already with you. Jesus teaches this to us in John chapter 14. He says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Again, Judas, not a scary, different Judas, he's confused. He's thinking physically. He's like, Lord, how are you going to manifest yourself to us and not the world? How are you going to show up physically and we're going to see you, but the world won't? Jesus is like, I'm not talking about a physical manifestation. I'm talking about the spirit. And he answers with this. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. Man, I love the way Jesus says that. Make our home with him. Jesus is not, God is not only dwelling with you through the Holy Spirit, but he is at home with you. It doesn't say I'm renting an apartment. It doesn't say I'm pitching a tent. It says I'm coming making my home. That's permanent. That's a permanent place of residence. Home. It abides. Right? He's abiding with you. It's lasting. It's not temporary. He's with you. And second, it, being at home means you're, you're comfortable. There's no awkwardness. Right? Sometimes in social situations, I walk into someone else's home or I walk into to a party or something that's not at my house and then there's, you know, there's a little bit of social awkward tension. Right? Like that's normal. But when I walk into my house, when I walk into my home, I'm at peace. I'm comfortable. And yeah, I know the flaws in my home. I know where the roof leaks. I know the problems that it has. I know its faults. I know that my lawn needs more nitrogen and the soil doesn't have enough. All that little nuance. But it's still like my home. What God is saying, he's saying, I'm going to be at home with you. I'm going to be with you forever. And I'm comfortable with you. I've taken care of those flaws. I've done on the cross for them, so I'm, I'm at home with you. There's not an awkwardness. There's not a tension between us and God. God is with us. He's at home with us. And that means that, that we are not alone. So often, there are so many of us in life who feel alone. And maybe we, we strive to be in God's presence. Maybe we strive to abide with him. Like, that's the cry of our heart. But our feelings tell us something different. I've talked to so many people who are like, I just don't feel like God is there. My experience just doesn't seem to, to signify that God is there. God's promises supersede our feelings. You are not alone 
regardless of how it might feel in the moment, God's promise supersedes that experience, supersedes that feeling. And if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God is dwelling with you now and forever. And if you have not accepted that truth in your own life, if you've not placed your saving faith in Jesus Christ, his arms are open. And he will come and dwell with you the minute you do that. It is immediate. Because God chooses you and he loves you. Look at what he says. Man, aside from abiding, love just flows through these verses. Read them with me. As my father has loved me, so I have loved you. Man, these words are so good, these four. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that your joy may be full or that you may have my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this that someone lay his life down for his friends and you are my friends. Jesus is looking at you today no matter where you are, no matter what your past is and he is saying you are my friends. I will choose you. Because I love you. I give my life up for you. Jesus has done that. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, that all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruits, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So we abide in God's love. He loves us so much. We've got to remember that as we seek to abide with God, that he is already with us. And then we take that and we go to God's word. And we abide in God's word. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It's as if my words abide in you. In Romans, Paul says, you know, how can they believe if they have not heard and how can they hear unless the word is preached? The word is both how we receive salvation and it is how we receive our sanctification through the Holy Spirit. By being in God's word, by meditating on it. And this is not something that we do on our own power. This isn't something we understand by our earthly wisdom. As we seek to understand God's word, he's going to reveal his work and his will through that word, and it's going to be revealed to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, in John 14, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance of all that I have said to you. God is dwelling with you. God abides with you. You abide with him. And as you abide in his word and you abide together, the Holy Spirit helps you remember and understand the word of God. And it reveals to us his will. Right? In Romans, I think it's 12 too, it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Therefore, you can test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. As we abide in God's word, it begins to transform our hearts and minds. Because instead of relying on the truth of the world, we rely on the truth of the word. 
And that transforms our hearts and our minds and it transforms our desires. And then we begin to understand what the will of God is. We as as a church, we as believers, we cannot ignore God's word. If you want to know how to abide, go to God's word. Abide in the word. If you want to go closer to God, go to his word. If you want to understand God more, you go to his word. If you want to be better prepared to bear fruit, you go to his word. If you want to know how to follow Jesus, you go to his word. We have to abide in his word if we are going to abide in God. It's the gift that he has given us to help us abide with him. We cannot ignore it. If you want to be transformed and look more like God, you go to his word. It transforms our hearts and it begins to take effect in our lives. And it has three profound effects as our hearts are transformed more to look like Jesus. The first is this. As we begin to pray powerful prayers. Our prayers begin to be powerful. Look at what Jesus says. And this is, the structure of this is so cool. If you abide in me, if we abide with God, he helps us understand his word and his word begins to abide in us. And then we ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. At the very end, um, in verse 17, he talks about, he says, um, you know, if anyone asks anything in my name of the Father, he will give it to them. Sometimes, as Christians, I think we we just tag this line on, right? We just say, uh, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Maybe we're not thinking of it as a talisman intentionally, but that's how we kind of use it. We approach these verses and we're like, okay, if I want to get what I want from God, all I got to do is say, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. That's not, that's not what God is saying. That's not what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching that we are supposed to be praying in God's will. Because as we abide with God, he transforms our heart and our will becomes more of God's will and then that will is revealed in our prayers. If you want to know what you desire, think about what you pray for. I mean, I think, I think it's wild um, that I... Uh, I didn't think of this until recently. You know, it was actually this week. We've had the, the week of prayer. We've had the prayer room. I've been working on that. We've had the prayer vigil. I've been thinking about all those things. And it wasn't until I continued to meditate on this passage that I had another like moment. Like, whoa. How often do I stop and wonder what God wants me to pray for? How often do I look to God's word to tell me what to pray for? Sometimes. Not nearly enough. If you want to grow in prayer, abide in God's word. Pray for what the word tells you to pray for. Try to pray for God's will. Try to allow his word to transform your heart to where what you want is eternal and not temporary. Transform your prayer life. So as we begin to abide in God and abide in his word, then we have powerful prayers. And then second, we're going to bear spiritual fruit. We're going to bear spiritual fruit. Again, as we begin to pray, we pray for God's will. God answers those prayers. And by this, the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We begin to pray for God's will and so we begin to pray to bear fruit. We begin to pray that, that God's will would be done in our lives and that we would do his will on earth. I think back even to the Lord's Prayer. 
After glorifying the Father, the next line he prays is, your will be done. And so God's will being done brings fruit in our lives, but it's not the fruit that you'd think of at first glance. At least it wasn't for me. I'm such a, a human, right? I just go to the external right away. I mean, it was, it was easy. I think it's so easy for any of us to, to look at this passage of Scripture as like a wake-up call passage or a gut-check passage. And we read it and we see the lines that Jesus teaches or that he says about bearing fruits and, and the branches that don't will be, will be taken off and they'll be thrown into the fire. You know, those who love me will do the, my commands. We look at those verses and we go, oh, gut check. Am I bearing fruit? Am I obeying God's commands? Am I really saved? And I don't know about you, but my reaction to those kind of gut check questions is to go out and work harder, to go out and strive more. To go out and say, oh man, I gotta make sure I do these things. I gotta have these external fruits so that I can feel good about myself, so I can justify myself to God. Like, God, look at all the fruit. I must be saved. But there's no fear in love. It's not what God is teaching. Jesus is always more concerned about the heart than he is about the external things. And what's funny, again, it seems simple, but it was an aha moment for me. I was like, God tells us in the scripture what the fruit of the Spirit is. I learned it in Sunday school as like a two-year-old. It tells us in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he says you will bear fruit. He's saying you will begin to be shaped into my character. You'll begin to love, to be kind, to be patient, to be gentle, to be self-controlled. That is the fruit of the Spirit that Jesus is concerned with. Those external things will follow, but not as a result of our ability. As a result of abiding and trusting God to work through us. You can do all those external things. You can donate money. You can volunteer your time. You can preach sermons. You can look good. You can study the Bible for hours and pray for days and look great on the outside, but your heart can be cold and hard on the inside. He's talking about that internal fruit of the Spirit. That's what you will begin to bear. Be transformed into the image of God. I think of this even, um, right, when we think about the pruning. says this, um, I'm going to skip forward a little bit on the slides due to time. Um, this, is, this is an unpruned uh, grapevine. Again, I, did, I did some looking on the internet and YouTube and stuff, trying to figure out more about grapes and how they're pruned and, and why they're pruned. And I, I had a grapevine in my yard that looked pretty similar to this. It's unruly coming over my, my fence from my neighbor's yard. Um, and the grapes were gross. They're just like these little tiny dudes um, that are sour and worth nothing, barely even look like grapes. But there's a whole bunch of vine. And what I discovered is the reason you prune grapevines is because if you don't, all the energy will be put into external production. Instead of producing fruit, the vine gets bigger, the branches grow larger, they overflow, they become unruly, and they just grow and grow in size, but the fruit is worthless. This is a pruned grapevine. See, when you prune, what you're doing is you're taking the branch down as close as you can to the vine. You're connecting it as closely as you can to the vine, and then all that energy that would have gone into growing the branch larger and bigger and longer goes into bearing grapes. And look at the difference. This is the type of thing I get in my yard, these little tiny things. 
They're like the you know, size of a fingernail. They're sour, gross. These are big, giant grapes. The small branches that are contained just a few feet. But there is fruit that is worth so much and you can do so much with. One of the things Jesus is trying to teach us is to not be so caught up in doing all of the external things that make us look bigger and larger and make us look like we've done something to a lot of people. Because that's what the external does is we look at ourselves and we, we justify ourselves. We say, look at all the things that I've done, but in reality, it's just a t- t- tumbled mess of vines that are tangled and unruly and bear no fruit. Jesus says, abide with me. Don't be concerned about your ability. Allow me to work through you. And then this results in abundant joy in our lives. Right? We have powerful prayers. We have spiritual fruit. And then we have abundant joy. Jesus says this, These things I have spoken to you, the reason I am teaching you this, is that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Three types of joy, three reasons for this joy. First, we get to dwell with God. I mean, think about that for a minute. God is dwelling with you right now. I mean, I I struggle to think of a better reason to be joyful than to know that the God who created the universe cares about me, chooses me, loves me, and comes to dwell with me. As Christians, as believers, we get to do that. That is the purpose for which we are created. God created us to be with him. And sin and death distorted that so we could no longer be with God because of our sin. Jesus has repaired that so we can be with him. That is reason for celebration. That is reason for joy. That gives me joy even in the midst of any other circumstances. And secondly, God gives us a purpose. How many of us bump into people or go through times in life where all we're searching for is purpose? How many self-help books are there, YouTube videos, blogs, podcasts about finding purpose, about trying to give meaning to life? The world doesn't have that. Jesus doesn't. He gives it to us. And he not only comes and dwells with us, but he says, you get to play a part. You get to bear fruit, not because you're awesome, not because of your ability, but because you're going to abide in me and I'm going to work through you. You sit back, abide, I will work. We get to be a part of God working in the world. There's such joy in that. And then finally, we have freedom from fear because it's not about justifying ourselves. It's not about stacking up our accomplishments and saying, God, look, look, I did it, I did it. It's not about putting forth more effort and saying, oh, I just got to prove that I'm a believer. I just got to do these things to show that I'm a believer. It's not about all that effort. It's freedom and saying, you know what? I'm going to abide with God. I'm going to seek him. I'm going to seek to love him, to know him. I'm going to spend time in his word. I'm going to seek to grow in his will. I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit to work. And that doubt might be there, but it does not stand up against the promise of God. Because, yeah, I might look at myself and I might see my flaws. I might see my mistakes. I might see all the ways that I fall short. But Jesus says, that's all right. I've got that. It's not based on what you can do on your own. It's based on what I'm going to do through you. You just abide. 
So let's sum the whole thing up. Jesus wants us to abide. It's how we're going to fulfill his mission. It's how we're going to continue his work in this world. We don't do that on our own. God is already abiding with us. And as he abides with us, we abide with him. And as we abide with him in his word, he helps us understand it. It transforms our prayer lives. We begin to pray into the will of God. God then takes our prayers and he answers them and it brings forth fruit in our lives and we look more like Jesus and we fall more in love with Jesus and the world can see that and fruit is brought forth and as a result, we have abundant joy. This is the message of John 15. Just one last thing. Don't don't stop abiding. Keep abiding. Remember that Jesus gave this teaching to us for this purpose of helping us as we try to seek to fulfill this mission. So don't stop abiding because there's so many things out there that want you to stop. The devil doesn't want you to abide. The world doesn't want you to abide. We're moving at a breakneck pace. So don't become so busy being a Christian that you forget to abide. Don't become so busy proving who you are that you forget who God has already called you to be.